This is a previously recorded episode. This show is broadcasting live from Detroit Sound Studios above Activate Gaming and is part of the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. DSR is sponsored by Cali Tickets for the best deal in town on Wings or Piston Tickets. Look no further than these guys. They stock great seats for all the local shows as well as the events all over the country. Mention the DetroitSportsRag.com and receive 10% off your first order. They have really great deals on the Who Show coming up on Saturday at the JLA. Or if you want to torture yourself watching Brad Osmus bungle yet another game like the incompetent Dartmouth dummy that he is. By the way, this is their copy, not mine. They can get you Tigers opening day seats for April 8th. Stuck with tickets you can't use? No problem. Cali Tickets can also help you sell your tickets. To see their huge selection of inventory, go to CaliTickets.com. That's Cali, C-A-L-I, like the LL Cool J song. Tickets.com, or you can call them toll-free at 877-225-8425. Now that we got that out of the way, I'd like to uh, mention that my co-host who is usually here on a weekly basis justin spiro is not here today Uh, jessica is producing as always hello spy is up where our first guest usually broadcasts his program in lansing taking the bar exam today and tomorrow Uh, cannot believe his priorities are so fucked up that he would try to become a lawyer and pass the bar instead of appearing on his weekly podcast. But uh, in his stead for the first few minutes of the show is a gentleman who, like I said before, is on 92.1 FM, the team in Lansing. He is insane enough to put me on every Monday to spew out my venom. His name is Ryan Schuling. We like to call him The Shoe. 
How you doing, Ryan? I did not no-shoe for you tonight, Jeff. That's how I'm doing. Yeah, thank God, because if you did, I just would have walked out of the studio and Jessica would have had to talk about Detroit sports and bash the media for two hours. You would have had no Well, I'm just glad that you guys uh, found out the the answer to the riddle of where your missing file went. I was ready to, you know, kind of lead the picket (laughs) charge against uh, Theo Spike. Oh, well, let Lord. me just let me just clear the air that you. I wasn't going to bring it up, but I will. I want to apologize to Theo. Uh, I want to apologize. It turns out that he did not shoot at our studio last week. We, we thought that we heard a gunshot. He did not. He didn't. He did not steal the file. Someone accidentally dragged it from one file to another, and it was inside another file. So we'd like to clear Theo. Spite our investigation is over. Pending any further information, the. Uh, the uh, the um, cheerleader for the Detroit Lions who sings forward down the field has been exonerated in this case, Ryan. I'm, I'm glad. I'm sure you're glad to hear this. Oh, I'm relieved. As all the DSR fans out here are, and uh, I'm just glad that there wasn't any more ill will between Theo and Justin. And neither is here to defend themselves, but really looking forward to their reunion tour and the next CD that they cut. And I think this is a step in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, Let's get into the first topic tonight. It's something that you know I wanted to talk about because I, it was after I was on your show yesterday. It came out the news that Victor Martinez, I guess, told a pool of Tigers beat writers and whoever columnists are down there in Lakeland, uh, having a jolly old time uh, writing up puff pieces and doing absolutely no uh, deep journalism, that Victor Martinez told the pool reporters that he felt 100% better this year coming into spring training than he did in 2015. And the quote that he gave, or I'm, I'm just going to uh, I'm, I'm just going to give you the gist of what he said. It's basically the difference between this year and last year was this year he can swing a bat. And I'm I'm guessing you probably had the same visceral reaction that I had Ryan where I kind of just lost my shit. Like you know, of course, the, you know, Anthony Fennick and the Chris McCoskeys and the people down there, Chris I, whoever else is down there, just laughed it up like, oh, yeah, haha, what a funny joke by Victor. It would be pretty funny if not for the fact that the man had 480 plate appearances, either batting third, fourth, or fifth in that lineup, and that he had a career low slugging percentage of, I think, three. 66, which was 100 points lower than his career slugging percentage. So Victor Martinez didn't have to tell you and I, Ryan, that he couldn't swing last year. We saw it for ourselves, and I'm not exactly sure what's funny about this. Well, the number you hit is exactly right, Jeff. 100 points below his career average, and get this, 200 points below the year before where he was all world and he rediscovered his power stroke at 32 home runs. It was a career renaissance for him. And you just saw that the toll that it took. And this all started back in spring training, as you'll recall, that Victor didn't feel quite right, wasn't sure when he'd be back. The Tigers were scared that they wouldn't have him in the lineup. And I think there was a process there that might have rushed him along a little bit and, and really screwed him over for the entire season. But the minute that Brad Oxmas or anybody in the front office could detect that Victor just wasn't right, And God love Victor, to his credit, I mean, he was going to try to play through this to the best of his ability. He just didn't have any ability. Like you said, he couldn't play off that left foot, could not hit left-handed at all for any degree of power, did not belong 
in the middle of the lineup, if in the lineup at all, with the year that J.D. Martinez had. You might even remember this, going back to the middle stages of the summer, there was so much reluctance on the part of Brad Ausmus to even move J.D. into the power spot behind Miguel Cabrera that you were left with this gaping hole that you just uh, elicited uh, about the middle of the lineup with Victor Martinez. And to me, that was that was egregious. That was a sin against the team, against its fans, against his teammates, in that he was trying to play through something that only made the situation worse, that did not help the team. He was hurting the team. And with that knowledge, Victor should have had the humility to, to know that it wasn't going to happen for him and to shut it down. That comes from him first. However, you're exactly right. The training staff has a responsibility in this to kind of judge judge for themselves exactly how much he has in the tank and what he can and cannot do. So this is a, a, a failure across the board. We can only hope that with the rest that he's had, the additional month with no playoffs, the silver lining in that is that he's as healthy as he was before the injury. I'm not so sure. I'm not so confident. And again, if Brad Moss was running the type of ship that he should, this is a spot in the lineup that Victor should have to win back. It should not be just given to him the way that it was last season. No question about it. And the, the, this is where I have a major issue. And, you know, Victor Martinez is a professional athlete, and most professional athletes, as you know, you've been in locker rooms, you've dealt with them in the past. These guys don't want to come out of the lineup unless they're dead, okay? Right. It's really the responsibility of the manager. And in a situation where you've got Victor Martinez, a player who was coming off an MVP-esque season the year before, as you mentioned, he finished second only to Mike Trout as a designated hitter, which is just showed you what kind of year he had, that a designated hitter who offered absolutely nothing in the field could have finished second in MVP voting. That's how good he was in 2014. So you knew in 2015, coming off the second major injury of his career uh, to his knee, that we were going to be you know, in uncharted waters there. And it was very easy in the first couple months to see this just wasn't the same guy. And the Tigers, as you saw what happened at the at the trade deadline, they only had a few months to decide, look, are we in this or are we not? And it wasn't even just that Victor Martinez shouldn't have been any fourth and maybe swapped with uh, J.D. Martinez. He was so bad, he, he shouldn't have been in the lineup at all. He, he should have been right. sat. And that's what's so scary about this 2016 season. Everyone loves what El Avila did in the offseason, uh, improving the relief pitching, adding Justin Upton, another bat, adding Zimmerman, and whether you like him or not, Pelfrey's another arm in the in the rotation or to help in the bullpen, wherever that lands. But you still have the same guy who thought it was an intelligent decision to make to put Victor Martinez's corpse in the four-hole, five-hole, or three-hole for 480 plate appearances last year. And the guy just admitted to us, that he couldn't swing a bat last year. And he's not joking. Because if you go back, I went and looked at some of the comments he made in September of last year where he said basically the same thing. So this is not an anomaly. He wasn't joking. This is the way – This is the, we saw it. And, you know, I, I know our, our sponsor, Kelly Tickets, in, in our – you know, the only website – or podcast and then the actual live read for the, the advertisements bombing the manager – but you know, it, this is what we're what, what I'm probably most terrified going into this season is awesomeness. Yeah, 
Yeah, no doubt about it, Jeff. I mean, I share that uh, concern with you. Uh, like you, I was very uh, pro osmosis, at least the concept of Brent Osmus, the idea of Brent Osmus, the type of background that he had, not only as a player, but as an intellect. And we just haven't seen that put into practice. Now, whether that was the shackles of Dave Dombrowski and his anti-math stance, I don't know. Al Avila has opened that door. He has brought in two guys and Sam Menson and Jay Sartori to put the roster together. I think one of those decisions was, for instance, going with Justin Upton instead of Johannes Cespedes for sabermetric reasons, and that applies across the board. The only uh, signing that was not sabermetric in nature was Pelfrey, who you mentioned earlier, whose numbers do not bear out that he should be a major league starter, but the Tigers got him for a price they felt they could afford, and it could buy them some time until a guy that you and I both like, Michael Fulmer, comes of age, hopefully sooner rather than later. But all that being said, you're exactly right. It's Osmus and his responsibility to put together the best lineup every night that gives him the best chance to win, to manage the bullpen to that same degree. And really, as an American League manager, there's not a whole lot else to do during a game. You're not having to worry about double switches, although he gets those wrong, I might add, in National League parks far more often than he should because he played in the National League for so long. But that being said, when you realize that a veteran player who has a very strong and stubborn personality is hurting your team, what do you do? Well, as a second-year manager, what you do is you capitulate to the stars on your team. You don't want to lose the locker room. You don't want them turning on you because you don't have the gravitas to stand on any kind of record or any kind of cachet or capital built up with these players to be able to make a tough decision, to look in the eye and say, I'm going to do this for the good of the team, and really there's nothing you're going to say or do about it. He doesn't have that. It is something that, although we both have our problems with him, Jim Leland did have to a large degree, but I don't even know if Jim Leland in that situation would have done the same thing because he's so loyal to his players, particularly his star players. That's why when divorced of emotion, when you're the manager, you can't be everybody's buddy, everybody's friend, everybody's pale. You're not one of the guys. You're not. You're in charge, and you've got to run the team as such. And all too often, managers are too afraid to do this with all the money that's invested, particularly in a player like Victor Martinez. But you're absolutely right. There came a point in the season last year where Victor was doing more harm than good, particularly in the middle of the lineup. J.D. Martinez was, again, a revelation, and he was the guy that you needed to build the offense around. And starting right now, Jeff, I'm going to be down there March 11th through March 20th. I'll gladly file a report with you. I'm going to try to get to the bottom of what it looks like down there, what Victor Martinez, what his physical condition is, and if J.D. Martinez can keep us going for a third straight season. But I'm coming into this season with the full notion that it's J.D.'s time. He's the one to hit behind Miguel Cabrera, and he's really the drivetrain of this engine on offense behind Mickey. No, I, I agree. And it wouldn't surprise me if Victor Martinez is you know, the same Victor Martinez last year where he put up a Don Kelly-esque OPS of, I think, 667. It's and, incredible, and, Jeff. And, yeah, it's over and, 300 points behind right. his near-MVP campaign of just a year before when he hit 974 OPS. So 300 points tonight, OPS, 200 points in slugging percentage, gone. He didn't even resemble the same player that he was just 365 days prior. No, and like I said on Twitter yesterday, having a designated hitter who can't hit uh, – an, for an OPS of over 750 to 800, basically, and is a detriment to the team and has a minus 1.8 war, it's basically the equivalent of a porn star who's got a limp uh, Johnson and can't perform. <laughs> and, I mean, what else What else are you paying for the guy? If, if, if Victor Martinez can't hit, 
there's just there's no other reason to have him on the team, and it'll be an interesting thing to see. And the the point that I want to make that I that you brought up is very interesting because when Spiro wrote the article about Mike Yelich getting rid of uh, Dave Dombrowski and how he was very angry with Brad Osmus, one of the things that our source, who was very close to the Illich family, said that Mike Illich was most upset about was that the players didn't respect. Osmus, that they basically saw him as a contemporary. He's not that much older than them. And, you know, what's going to get better this year, considering the guy is a lame duck manager, he's on his last year, and, mm-hmm. you know, we can and we can say all we want that, oh, maybe bringing in the guy from Apple and promoting Sam Menzen and, and getting Christopher Long into the mix, all of these moves to bolster the sabermetric department we're all praying or hoping that it trickles down to the managerial position, but there's no guarantee of that. And it's a segue into, you know, basically blind hope that things are going to get better because we had some of the same, you know, wishes for the Red Wings coach. (laughs) You know, we thought that, you know, there was a lot of people, Red Wings fans who were into advanced math and you know the analytics that were very displeased with how Mike Babcock had run the Red Wings the last couple of years, and we saw that uh, we are going to get a new coach, a young guy, guy's younger, he's younger than me, Blashill. He's probably around you, maybe he's probably younger than you too. Uh, the head coach of the Red Wings, we thought, oh, this is going to be a new approach. It looked good starting off. He had broken up the pair of Erickson and Cronwall, which was an absolute analytics nightmare. He insisted to Ken Holland that he bring up Dylan Larkin and that he didn't spend, you know, the whole year in Grand Rapids. So there was positive signs. But in the last few weeks, everything's falling apart. It's 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 very disturbing. Yeah, and there are some parallels here. You and I have kind of uh, touched on the subject during your appearances on my program on Mondays, but I, I tend to have a bit more confidence in Jeff Blaschel than Brett Austin for the following reason. He cut his eye teeth working up through the ranks at various levels of hockey and proving himself as a man in charge, as a guy behind the bench making those decisions, and he won himself a Calder Cup with the Grand Rapids Griffins, no small task in and of itself as AHL champions. I based all of my benefit of the doubt status with Blaschel on that. I still think, Jeff, we're at a time of transition with the Red Wings, the unfortunate part, unlike the Tigers, you have a, a movement toward analytics that's very tangible with Al Avila and the guys he's brought in that you and I are fans of, Tony Paul as well from the Detroit News. On the Red Wings side, they might be the most mathematically averse team remaining in hockey to this day. They trust their scouts for good reason. You and I both know they've been able to pillage and raid Europe for years now to the tone of, Many draft picks that have come into the middle of the late rounds that other teams just didn't know about, but they were able to get them in the Red Wings pipeline and get value at a time in the draft that, I mean, we talk about it in football, the New England Patriots, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Green Bay Packers, able to maximize draft value. Holland still does that. He has a great staff of support along those lines, but then once you get them in, managing their minutes, knowing what combinations work, going to the analytics that Prashant Iyer and I discussed on my show, and I know you've talked to him as well, there's a new thinking, there's a new math out there, and it works. If it didn't work, it wouldn't be done, and teams wouldn't be embracing it. 
but we've got hither and yon lines that are kind of strung together based on reputation, based on maybe the relationship with Jeff Blaschel and the work ethic that he thinks he sees. I mean, we're talking about an eyeball test. That doesn't pass the muster in today's hockey. It's not going to win you games. It's certainly not scoring them goals. And they have had a tremendous um, difficulty in putting together any kind of coherent offensive attack, be it on the power play or even strength. And you can draw a straight line, like you just said. If you don't embrace analytics, at least to a degree, it's not the total answer, it's not the silver bullet, but it is something that is useful and could maybe lead you down a path of, why don't we trust the younger guys? Flash will see those guys at work, whether it was Polkinen or Andreas Antetokounmpo or Thomas Yurko. These are guys that helped him win a Calder Cup. He saw it firsthand. That was the hope you referred to coming into the season that was going to change from Mike Blaschel, from Mike Nedcock rather, to Jeff Blaschel, but we haven't seen it. it. The thinking isn't in the front office at the highest levels, and so it's going to be a much more arduous process for Blaschel maybe to put his own stamp on the team, and he has not done that yet. I, I just don't understand, and I mentioned it, I went on a rant yesterday on your show about some of the decisions that have been made of late that are just absolutely mind-blowing. The fact mm-hmm. that Thomas Yurko, who I don't, don't even look at analytics, just watch the guy play the last few weeks. There are, you can't name three better forwards than Thomas Yurko on the Red Wings over the last month. The guy's been very good. He's actually put the puck in the net a couple times. He's a force when he's out there. And in the, in the numbers, the possession numbers, bear it out. And this guy's sitting he sat the last game against the Rangers. He's sitting tonight. They're promoting Luke Glendening, a walk-on at the University of Michigan with very little offensive skill at all, to the third line tonight and pairing him with Pulkinen. Like, what, what did Pulkinen ever do to Blashill that he sits him, and then when he brings him in the lineup, he plays him seven minutes a game, and then he puts him with an absolute scoring-impaired abortion like Glenn Denning, who should be relegated only to penalty killing and, you know, maybe five or six minutes a game of five on five. And you promote this guy to the third line? It just makes absolutely no sense. Like I told you said on the show the other day, Athanasio and, and, and Pulkinen, two of the better forwards against the Rangers the other night, when they played in limited uh, duty, played 13 minutes combined, and the poster boy for, you know, I I don't even know what it is. Their their obsession, their love with Luke Denning played five more minutes than those two guys combined. It, it just makes no sense. I test numbers wise. There's no reasoning, and you're not scoring, and you're promoting a guy who can't score to a third line. It just none of this makes any sense, which is so infuriating. We're going to talk a little more about it uh, in about 10 or 15 minutes with Anthony Ciotti. We're going to break down the, the trade deadline that's coming up and if the Red Wings are going to do anything there while we're all terrified waiting for Ken Holland to sell more of the future off to get into the playoffs for another year only to be maybe eliminated in the first round. And that's probably the, the, you know, the, the last thing I want to point I want to make about the Red Wings with you is that we're caught in a situation where the town – the people who really aren't watching on a night-to-night basis like that you and I do, watching every game pretty much, you know, either for your job or for my website, my hobby, who just say, well, how can you say that Ken Holland hasn't been doing a good job? They've made the playoffs every year since 1991. They've won four Stanley Cups. 
like things can't change. What what does the fact that they've made the playoffs every year and they haven't advanced past the second round since the last cup loss in two thousand and nine? What does that have to do with anything that's going on today? It doesn't. It has nothing to do with Yurko sitting or Pulkinen being mm-hmm. buried or the the contracts that's doled out to Abdelkader, which the league is you know the league press mocked incessantly. But you can't. It's like there's a there's just a shutoff valve that people just Ken Holland, the guy must be good because they're making the playoffs every year with no thought that well really. What you really should be thinking about is this guy's pissed away the last good years of Pavel Datsuk and Henrik Zetterberg over the five last five or six years. That's what they should be concentrating on. Yeah, and there's a lot to, to point at with Ken Holland over these last few years, Jeff, to point to the results that you're getting. And it's bad trades at the deadline that have not panned out. It's surrendering young talent, albeit not necessarily star talent yet, but in the effort to kind of chase that elusive prize of getting into the playoffs for now it's going to be 25 straight seasons, we hope. But the, uh, another red warning flag for me was the whole Dan Clary debacle, and we haven't talked about that yet. But the, the fierce loyalty to guys that have been there, and again, the grit, the work ethic, did they buy in, all these things that really meant a lot under Mike Babcock, and it, it made them, it led them down a, a path of releasing to waivers for nothing in return in compensation. Uh, Andre Nestrichel, who's a guy that I covered at length in Toledo with the walleye as he made his ascent from the ECHL to the AHL and then eventually with the Red Wings. And the guy that could score doesn't necessarily have the explosiveness of a team of Polkanen, but what do the Red Wings need right now? Offense. Is Dan Cleary around to provide it? No. Is Johan Franzen around? That's another guy that just so happens to be simultaneous and coincidental that Franzen's demise coincides with the Red Wings not winning another playoff series. And that was the choice Ken Holland made when he went in the Franzen direction for a long-term contract at Albatross entirely over Marion Hosa. A series of bad decisions, not quite on the level of Joe Dumars, but there has been many of them that you can criticize for Ken Holland. And again, this uh, disdain for younger players, it was much more pronounced under Babcock. I had a detailed conversation when I was still on in the mornings in Grand Rapids with Jeff Blaschel on my morning show there about Timu Polkin and how he did not thrive under Mike Babcock. Babcock kind of had it out for him. He was in the doghouse, but Blaschel embraced it. And one of the things Blash said that is that odds with what we're watching right now is with Timu, you've got to just let it happen. You take the good with the bad. You put him out there, and you try to work with him through the weaknesses, and you focus on his strengths. It's magic what I just heard in my ears in that conversation with Jeff Blaschel, but he's reverting back to a safe zone, I believe, of where Mike Babcock was, and Blash was afraid to strike out on his own. And I think the same could be said, circling back our conversation to Oxmas. Blash was going to come in, and he doesn't necessarily need to swing himself around, if you know what I mean, to establish his authority, but he does have credibility in that locker room, I believe, and especially with the younger players, to be able to utilize them and get the most out of them. This whole Luke Glendening uh, promotion that you mentioned, the, the extended ice time, that he just has not earned, and I like Luke. I think he's a hard worker, but he's limited in his skill set, and he's just not a guy that's going to contribute on a winning level at that level with uh, a pairing with Polkin. It doesn't make any sense, and I think what you've got to do at some point, Jeff, 
not that the playoff streak be damned, you want to make the playoffs, but for the long-term health of the franchise, you've just got to let these young guys play and prove themselves, whether it's Polkinen or Yurko or Andreas Antonisiu. They're going to make mistakes, and they will be glaring at times, but there's only one way to learn, and that's to play. And these guys got to get more minutes. Heck, the Red Wings aren't doing so great without them. Might as well see what you can do with them. And the, lo- and the last point I'm going to make is this loyalty thing. The loyalty thing is such bullshit. And you can't be loyal in the salary cap era. I'm no. At, well, who is the, what a team since the salary cap era has started? Which is the most dominant team in the NHL? Chicago Blackhawks. Yeah, that's true. Right, Stan Bowman, Scotty Bowman's son, the most dominant team. Where they've won three cups in, in this era. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where is their loyalty? Where was their loyalty to Dustin Bufflin after they won the cup the first time? Where was their loyalty to Brandon Saad? These guys, these players that they developed, they, there was no loyalty. They did what was in the best interest of the franchise. Now, some of these issues with the Blackhawks were because were financial, because they were cap-strapped and they had to make some of these moves. But these Brandon Saad, a guy they just drafted a few years ago and developed and played in you know, his rookie year, when they had to make a tough choice, and they traded him to the Columbus Blue Jackets. They've traded and, and, and got rid of a ton of guys who have helped them win Stanley Cups. There is no loyalty with the Chicago Blackhawks. The loyalty that, that, that Stan Bowman and Joel Quenville and Scotty, you know, in the, as an executive or doing whatever he does, the loyalty is to the brand. The loyalty is yep. to that hockey team on the ice. The loyalty is to the fans in that United Center who sell it out every night. That's where the loyalty is, not to a corpse of a player like Dan Cleary or you know, giving out contracts to Jonathan Erickson or Justin Abdelkader. Their loyalty is winning the Stanley Cup and competing for every year, which they might win again this year. And, and, and because of these moves that they've made that showed absolutely no loyalty. Uh, so you know, that, that, that's just a point I wanted to make, that in a salary cap era, you can't be beholden to guys – for what they'd done three or four years ago. And the Chicago Blackhawks do not do that. It's a great point that you make, Jeff, because you're right. The Blackhawks' success is completely parallel with the advent of the cap era and the decisions that need to be made. And I think you're right on the money that Ken Holland is kind of stuck in that old way of thinking. We're going to reward our veterans. We're going to keep them around. We're going to extend them. And in the non-salary cap era, you could do that car blanche. And the Red Wings were the best at it, putting together the, the best team ever, maybe ever on the ice in 2002. But he knows that thinking is outdated. I just think uh, subconsciously, for whatever reason, uh, there's this knee-jerk impulse against making the tough decisions that you're talking about right there and having to do what's best for the brand and what's best for the, the competitive product on the ice. And right now, if you watch the Red Wings, and it's, it's very much a disjointed puzzle. There are a lot of parts that don't fit. They need a top-end defenseman. They thought that was Nicholas Cronwall, and it was much to their dismay and demise that that was not the case. Erickson certainly isn't a top-pair defenseman. I like Danny DeKaiser, but he's the only one you look at and go, there's, there's certifiable upside on the blue line. It's DeKaiser and what else? Brendan Smith's been a little bit better. I'll acknowledge that. He's been pretty uh, inconsistent, to say the least, over the last few Who years. Who knows? I mean, they don't, they don't give Olette a chance. They haven't let Jensen up to play any extended minutes. Ryan Sproul, all these guys that were in the top 50 of the, any, uh, the hockey news last year's top 50 prospects, 
We even you know we don't hear anything about them. They don't get a shot because we see the same thing over and over again. The last thing I want to talk to you about, uh, it would be I'd be remiss not to ask you about this while I have you on, since you also not only are on ninety two point one the team uh, in Lansing, you can uh, listen online on that if you're down here in the Detroit area and you can't get that signal. I always uh, tweet out every Monday uh, the link to the show one to three weekdays. You can listen to Ryan and he's got. Just guest after guest, uh, the you know people that we like, like Tony Paul. Some people we're not exactly thrilled with, like Graham Couch and Matt Shepard. But you can <laughs> you tune in for you know the, you're going to for two hours a day if you want to listen and hear about sports and not hear about you know what's the best place to get a burger in East Lansing. You will hear sports for two hours straight on Ryan's program. Uh, but you are also moonlight as the Michigan State basketball PA announcer. So I have to ask you a question that's just been on everyone's mind this weekend. I know you probably have some inside information being so down down there, right on the floor, close to Coach Izzo. Uh, Denzel Valentine, did he have surgery or did he not? <laughs> Actually, Coach Izzo addressed this. A question came up in the press conference, and he just uh, immediately dismissed it. I'm trying to wonder what the upside or upshot is his absence and he didn't have surgery was there an off-court incident I mean those are the gaps that people are trying to I think fill in in terms of why he missed the time that he missed I don't know I haven't seen the x-rays Jeff I'm not privy to his medical records whether he actually has a procedure done I did talk to Denzel briefly upon his return and how he was feeling did you look to see if there's any did you look at 100% did you look to ask for any incision I mean, I think this is. I think this is absolutely. I've never heard anything. What was I thinking? I don't know why I didn't do that, but I've never heard anything like it. I'm aware of about Denzel is he would play without a limb if he could out there, and they had to kind of reel him back in and and do in the short term what was going to be better for the team in the long term. I don't know where this all came from the fabrication of the surgery or the. It was a joke. It was a joke. It was a joke by by Mark Titus, who wrote wrote for Grantland, who I think he gained prominence because. He was a uh, high school teammate of Greg Oden, and I think that's how he parlayed into being a writer for ESPN. He made a joke on Twitter about it, about it, and then and, and I know your buddies with some of those guys from iSportsWeb. They wrote an article about it over the weekend and promoted this idea, like, "Oh, did he have surgery?" I mean, it's the craziest thing I ever heard. I mean, I know Izzo goes to great lengths to keep things maybe on the down low, but to to lie about. A college athlete having surgery, I think he'd be institutionalized if that was the case. I, I just I think this is the most asinine story, and irresponsible by ESPN for you know giving it any legs whatsoever. Because, yeah, I, mean, I would say this just to briefly to wrap up here, Jeff. When it comes to Tom Izzo, and I've covered him and interviewed him, and talked to him over twenty years. If anything, he is quite the anti-Fantonio, if you will, about injuries. He's very out in the open. He is very transparent when it comes to, I would say, even academic issues. Just one story briefly before we go. Kenny Kaminsky left the university. He ended up going, and he plays right now at Ohio University in the Bobcats and the Mac. And he tweeted something out about it. It was his choice to leave. No, it wasn't. Tom Izzo got so furious, he went to the PR people, the media people, Michigan State, and said, let's craft a press release. We're going to say exactly why he left. And he cited that Kenny did not meet his academic obligations to the university. He wanted to set the record straight. So even when it might not be in his best interest, Tom Izzo is honest to a fault. There's no chance that he's hiding anything here with Denzel. 
Well, I appreciate you uh, filling in for the first half hour today for you know our future barrister, Justin Spiro. Uh, I, I hope they don't ask any questions about you know holding signs up in Wrigley Field on the bar exam or taunting home players on the baseline when they're trying to shoot free throws. Uh, I know there's some character assessment that they make on these these tests, Ryan, and I just hope there's no you know there's nothing there that uh, is trips up a good old spy. Well, good luck to Justin. I got to say that. And of course, his wife is expecting very soon. It's a, it's a big week for Justin Spiro, and uh, the DSR needs a qualified attorney added to its midst, and it's just the beginning for good old spy. Yeah, that's all we need, another attorney. All right, yeah. Ryan, I appreciate you joining us. I will talk to you next Monday around one thirty, and then hopefully when you're down in Florida avoiding PT cruisers, uh, down down there <laughs> while you're driving around and buzzing around uh, that, that beautiful town where I think the uh, only restaurant that worth eating at is an Applebee's. Or Hooters. Yeah, yeah, there's a Hooters and an Applebee's. I think that's about the only thing that's uh, of any relevance down there. <laughs> but we'll talk to you hopefully uh, when you're down there and get your insight on what's going on. Maybe you can ask Brad Osmus when you're down in Lakeland, if, if your designator hitter couldn't swing a bat last year, why did you continue to put him in the second most important position in the lineup? Maybe you'll get I'll do my maybe, best. Maybe you can ask that question. You got it, Thanks, Thanks Ryan. Have, have, a, have, a safe, have a safe trip down to Lakeland. Like I said, uh, if you're flying, you know, be careful down there, and you, know, you never know when a uh, beat writer might just uh, – some of his demons might escape. So, Thank, thanks, thanks Ryan. My eyes open. Thank you. All right, <laughs> all right. Well, Jessica, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we are going to really get into some wings talk. The trade deadline is next week. We're all shuttering our windows and and, and buying supplies for the storm that's coming. Notice Ken Holland dealing away the future of the wings. Anthony Ciotti, a DSR contributor, after this break. This is a previously recorded episode. Back on the Detroit Sports Rag Podcast, episode 19, February 23rd. Just had Ryan Schuling on the program. A good segment with him talking the Wings and Tigers. Really, the really the only discussion to have at this point of the year, in my opinion, is the Red Wings. I really don't care about the Pistons, what, they're, what the hell they're doing. I'm kind of checked out. They... they it seems like the only teams that can be in the NBA are last year's NBA finalists, the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors against everyone else. They uh, obviously aren't trying to their maximum potential because uh, it would make no sense that they're they're beating teams that are 50-5 and five and a team with LeBron twice, three times, uh, and they're losing to the Memphis Grizzlies of the NBA. And just It's just ridiculous. So we're going to dedicate most of the show to the Red Wings which leads me to our next guest, DSR contributor Anthony Ciotti, who we've had on the show before to talk about the wings. But i got to break some news here. I don't even know if you know this yet, Anthony. I just picked this up in the last break on Twitter. I will read you the headline. John Scott's Hockey Rocky Tale Nets movie deal. Mitch Album to script all-star MVP story for Mandalay Sports Media. Your reaction. Is that really happening? It's it's not an onion article. It's 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 real. Kukla's corner retweeted. It's from Deadline. dot com, the uh, Bible of 
Hollywood. It's it, it's dead serious. Mitch Albom is going to be writing the movie about John Scott. I mean, could this story become any more bizarre than that? Um, the, the Oscar game was so much fun, but I, I don't know if that warrants like a movie. I mean, it was, it was great, and like the whole storyline is a lot of fun. But I mean, making a whole movie out of that, just, I, I would settle for like a five thousand word feature. I mean, yeah. a, a movie about a guy who jokingly made the All Star team. Uh, how could you? That's it's a Saturday night. If anything, it's a Saturday night live skit. And Brian Kavanaugh just walked into the building. You get on the mic, because you haven't heard this yet probably either, if you wish you were listening. Uh, I will read you this headline, too, for your instant reaction. John Scott's Hockey Rocky Tale, and that's movie deal, Mitch Album to script all-star MVP story for Mandalay Sports Media. Mitch Album is going to write the John Scott movie. The big hockey fan that Mitch Album is. Yeah, I'm huge. sure he watched that all-star game, too. <laughs> I'm sure he had any idea who John Scott was. Five minutes before they asked him to write this movie, even after all of the all-star hubbub, he probably didn't know who John Scott was. He probably couldn't pick him out of a crowd. And and he's 6'8". Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, So (laughs) I'm just, I I don't know. How is this this movie going to end, Anthony, with uh, John Scott? John Scott in heaven. John Scott in heaven with Jordan Tutu, Troy Crowder, Bob Probert. Uh, Joey Koser, I, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm just thrown for a loop. The whole show is like off the rails now because of this news. No, I don't know. John Scott, who, who would, who could play John Scott? Six foot eight. Um, I, I, I don't know. You know, maybe what's the guy's name that's married to Stamos? She kind of looks. Who uh, Stamos's ex? Jerry O'Connell. Jerry O'Connell. Could he yeah. skate? Maybe. I mean, you got to skate. You got to be able to skate. And. You got to be tall. Ben Affleck, he plays everything. What's going on? You have a caller. Who's a caller? Who's the caller? When... I don't know. Uh, I'm not taking any calls. Okay. <laughs> Denied. That's a, that's, a, that's a bad idea. So let's get into the uh, Red Wing talk, Anthony. I don't know if you were listening prior uh, when we were talking to Shu, but I, I I brought up a point. I kind of want your thoughts on it about the loyalty issue with Ken Holland, and juxtapose that with the Chicago Blackhawks. And the, the, the couple of the players that I mentioned that they jettisoned after winning Cups, uh, Brandon Saad, Dustin Bufflin, uh, they had to make tough choices. And Stan Bowman and the Chicago Blackhawks, they, they, there was no loyalty involved with making those decisions. They just made what was the best organizational choice going forward to win a Cup again. And it's a model that is the antithesis, in my mind, of what Ken Holland's done in the salary cap era and over the last few years. Well, I think it boils down to an understanding of how the salary cap works. You can't keep older players uh, and still be really successful for the most part. Older players are more expensive. And uh, the Blackhawks, they've had to reset their cap, I think, two or three times now, despite all their success. So after the first cup, I think it was 2010, they had to blow that team up. And then they've had to blow it up again this past season. And, I mean, it, it takes it takes some good luck. They got really lucky with injuries uh, in the playoffs last year. They only basically played four defensemen. Uh, but they had to make those changes going into this offseason. So, like you're saying, with Brandon Saad, um, Patrick Sharp, I mean, those are those are tough decisions. I'm sure, like, they don't really want to lose those players. But at the same time, you have to be able to be forward-thinking and backfill. So they've got some good rookies uh, this year. And they started off kind of slow. And so kind of thought maybe they were – 
reaching the end of their line. Um, they've actually got a lot of salary tied up in Crawford, uh, Kays, and Kane. And so that makes the margin for error very small. But despite that, you know, they've been able to make the hard moves and do, you know, still be successful. On the flip side, you know, the Wings, they're locking up guys who aren't really producing at uh, higher rates to huge deals. You know, so the um, Ericsson's, Cronwall's, um, Advocator this past season, guys that they should be parting ways with, especially in like Ericsson and Advocator's case, walking up to the better part of their 30s where those contracts will become albatrosses. You know, just like uh, Cronwall's is becoming right now. So, um, Advocator in two or three years, you know, there's a host of articles after he signed that deal. Whereas in two or three years, he's going to be closer to being a replacement level player than a first liner. And they're paying him for like seven years or something like that. So, uh, it just comes down uh, to basically a misunderstanding of like, how the cap actually works and what you have to do to be successful long term. What about the recent uh, decisions? By Jeff Blashill, I think we were all, like I said, told Shu, we were all pretty excited about what he was going to do with this team. In the last few weeks, you would really guess that, that Mike Babcock was the head coach of this team still. Uh, to me, I haven't seen anything. The bearing of Pulkinen, where he didn't play for games at a time, brings him back, and he's playing six or seven minutes. Uh, his refusal to play Thomas Yurko now tonight and, and the other night, even though he's been one of the top forwards five on five. It, it's been very disheartening, and I'm just wondering what your comments on that situation are. Um, I think they're a little bit hamstrung. They don't have enough center depth, and so it hurts guys like Tolkien and Yurko who are a little bit younger and need good centers to help distribute the puck. So I think to the to the eye test, you know, it makes them look um, like they're playing poorly to an extent. Um, I think with Yurko and Fulton, uh, they might also have an issue with uh, their uh, defensive prowess, I guess, along their own blue line. There was a couple instances in that Ottawa game where they were causing turnovers or weren't um, in the right spots on the breakout. But overall, I think you have to trade that for the offense because this team is pretty much offensively um, challenged. And by playing your quote-unquote grinders in higher leverage minutes, which they're starting to do with Glendening and Helm. 18 um, minutes against the Rangers, Glendening. Sorry? 18 minutes for Glenn Denning against the Rangers. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's just not. I mean, that's that's the reason. Um, those kind of minutes are why they struggled earlier in the season. And actually, like if you look at 18 minutes for Glenn Denning, you would think they were starting to tank. Like that's not the kind of um, like minutes you want to give that guy if you're trying to make the playoffs. And um, to sit uh, Yurko and Barry Polkin in basically instead of giving them. Um, you have to get creative to get those guys to puck a little bit, especially with the center uh, deficiencies they have. But, I mean, that's going to be a meal ticket trying, trying to make the playoffs here. Um, trying to prevent goals, especially, you know, when you're not scoring a lot, trying to win every game 1-0 to or 2-1 to one, um, can be a little bit risky. You know, they've, they've had really good luck in those one-goal games, as we talked about last time. But, like, that's not, that's not entirely sustainable. I think you have to try to improve um, your offense a little bit and, you know, I think they're, like I said, I think they're a little bit desperate because their center depth is so bad, and I think it always it goes all the way back to when they signed Weiss and he got hurt, and then, you know, Richards just isn't what they thought he would be. I mean, everybody knew he wasn't going to be very good when they signed him, but, I mean, he's not what they thought he would be. And they have to put Dylan Larkin as a second-line center who, you know, it's really hard to ask on an 18-19-year-old at NHL to play second-line center. So um, I think that really messes them up um, in a lot of ways, and I think you'll go and poking in kind of stuff for it, which I don't agree with, but I think that's their line of thinking. The team has been so mismanaged over the last few years. 
that it, it, it's really it's real. You know what? We have a special guest. I think on the line. Jez, we have, is he gone? Call back, okay? Yeah, call back special guest. Uh, we can see where I'm he's from. I'm excited now. Uh, yeah. He drove away the guest, and now he's Yeah, we have another. Well, he's not that special. He's a little special. Oh, not that stop. special. <laughs> and he's back. Oh, he's back. All right. Uh, guest, are you on the line there? What up, Joe? Uh, shouldn't you be taking an exam right now? What are you, I was. Are you slacking? Are you done? I'm done for today. How'd it go? I don't want to talk about it. How are you guys doing today? <laughs> you don't want to talk about it? Oh, That's no. a beautiful song. Well, we got Anthony Ciotti on the line uh, talking about the wings. Anything that you called in to chime in about? I know it wouldn't be about the wings. I just hope I sound better than Anthony does. He sounds like Hyman Roth getting smothered by the pillow. <laughs> are we I having sound? I can barely sound? hear him. What's going on over there? Are we having What's sound? He, is he talking into like a, a washcloth? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not having any problem understanding what he's saying. Maybe you're just uh, a little shaken from your poor performance on the bar exam. I didn't say it was poor. I just said I don't want to talk oh, about it. Oh, okay. I just, uh, I just extrapolated that into it. Well, I, I hate to crash your party, but I have to know what Anthony thinks of Jack Johnson to Detroit. <laughs> Anthony? I think he's much better than a lot of the four million dollar defensemen they have. Um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to differentiate how he's doing in Columbus because a lot of their guys are, you know, are performing and it's a, it's a poisonous team. But a change of scenery might be good for him. Spiro. Yeah, that sounded like Hyman Roth into the pillow. I didn't <laughs> understand any of that. I, I know I know Mahir Bahatnagar doesn't like Jack Johnson's flippity floppity floop or whatever it is. Who are you, Jerry are you Green? Are you, are you Jerry Green now? Are you ninety <laughs> years old? Are you are you are you, are, are you insulting the sabermetrics community by making jokes about the uh, the uh, names? I I didn't realize you were a retired hundred and seventeen year old Detroit <laughs> News columnist mocking advanced metrics because the best man at your wedding doesn't doesn't just doesn't really excel in those advanced metrics. I, I really don't think you should take it out on him. Uh, on the numbers. Well, it is going to be so glorious tonight to see Jack Johnson skating in Detroit. It'll be for the wrong team, but hopefully uh, a small sample of what it'll be like to see him skating in Detroit. We might be seeing it for a lot longer, a lot more often. No one is mentioning this kid as a guy that will be moved. I don't know if it'll be by the deadline, but I would not be shocked to see Jack Johnson traded to Detroit this offseason. Well, it wouldn't surprise me either because Ken Holland has a history of trading for guys or acquiring guys or signing guys for big big numbers where the metrics don't show that it's deserved. So it would not shock me at all if Ken Holland went and acquired a, a, a guy who is you know not very proficient possession-wise or with any of those numbers that uh, we like to quote and makes you know $4 million a year. So it wouldn't shock me at all if Ken Holland would acquire a player of that talent. You're starting already with this mean stuff. I, I don't know, you know, I've been on the line for like a minute and a half. <laughs> well, look, you call in, you insult the sound quality of Anthony's phone. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, I didn't even expect this. I thought you would be either taking the test or doing Lamaze classes with your wife, who is due at any moment, but not disrupting the show. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if this is actually Spiro or Theo Spite doing a Spiro imitation. Oh, God. Here we go. <laughs> Have there been any 
sabotages of the site today or the no. show today, I should say? No, we and you missed the earlier part of the show. We did exonerate uh, Theo from last week's shenanigans. So, all well, right, well, you did, but I didn't. All right, well, so well, I'll let you guys get back to it. Well, I just could, wanted to say yeah. hi and uh, hi, I miss you guys. I'm looking forward to being back next right. week. Good luck, and maybe we'll call you back when we're discussing the uh, the tournament in about twenty twenty five minutes with me here. You can, All right, well, I'm going in to see the Michael Moore movie to celebrate being done with the essay portion of the exam, but uh, oh, okay. I look forward to listening to it later. Well, good luck tomorrow. All right, any any word on your Thank wife you. giving any wife on your uh, word on your wife giving birth? Uh, not yet. I got the phone attached to my hip, though, so uh, I got that same portable charger I gave you as a present. So I have my phone ready to go. If I have to hop on the road and fail the exam, so be it. But uh, she should do any day. All right. Thanks, Justin. Good luck tomorrow. See you. Bye. Good luck, Justin. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Justin. Bye. Hi, Jessica. Fun stop stop flirting tonight. with our producer while your wife's nine months pregnant, you bastard. Uh-huh. What are you trying to pull a dairy? <laughs> okay. Uh, back to Anthony. Bye, and... Maude. Bye, bye, Justin. Aww, I love you. Bye. I'm, I'm, I'm reeling here, Jeff. Uh, I, I, he's inside my head. I went and changed headsets. So I, oh. I hope I. <laughs> you sound I fine to me. Him. I don't know what he's talking <laughs> about. You sound a little Did more he's... clear now, not going to lie. Yeah, BCAV, it, it can hear you a lot in clear. Yeah, so I don't know. Spiro's just a little jealous that he's not getting all the airtime this week. So I think he's trying to sabotage your segment. <laughs> I, w- I want to talk about the trade deadline. Is what coming up Tuesday? Is that when it is? The 29th. Yeah. 29th? Uh, Monday or Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. The, and, I, and I've been talking about this for the last couple of days. The time of year when Red Wing fans uh, basically just bunker down in their houses. They go into their panic rooms. They turn off their phones. They want to be shut off from the outside world in panic and, uh, you know, just of what is about to come. We, we've known in the past that Ken Holland has been willing to trade prospects and draft picks for players that, not hindsight, nobody in this room, nobody on the phone, nobody probably in our listening audience thought that David Legwan was going to make a big difference on the Red Wings a couple years ago. Eric Cole, another decision that may be a little better than Legwan, but then he got hurt. So it's it's been terrifying being a Red Wing fan this time of year. It used to be a kind of a holiday season back oh, before yeah. – Back before the deadline, I mean, it was like we we're just waiting to see what, what you know what players we were going to add because you know salary wasn't a question, and we really didn't give a damn if we were giving up the 29th or thirtieth pick in the draft. Uh, just you know, add whatever we could, uh, you know, Chris Chelios or whoever, you know, who would Brad Stewart even back a few years ago. But now we're just in terror, and I'm just wondering if you could give me a couple players' names who we should watch out for that we should be terrified if the Red Wings are connected with those names uh, on the market and Ken Holland's you know, interested in those. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Scott Hartnell would be the top. Uh, that was top number one on my player. list. Scott Hartnell, if, 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 there is, if there is a perfect – I mean, if you probably created the Ken Holland model, the forward he would acquire the deadline, UFA, past his prime, a lot of miles on that odometer – uh, you know, big power forward who can score, you know, tough goals in the playoffs. It, it's definitely Hartnell. And I'm just wondering uh, if that's going to be the uh, the, the uh, surprise package that we get next week. Oh, man. Uh, I just don't think that's going to help them. I mean, they need something down the middle. They need, like, I mean, they need to build a little bit for the future as well because of uh, the way they've kind of decimated their, their system with giving away these players the last few years who've developed into good NHLers, you know, like uh, Yarncroft, um, uh, Jan Mark, 
uh, Nestrasil. Um, those three guys are all playing second line or better on very good teams. Um, Carolina's not good in the standings, but they're outstanding in possession, and they've gotten some of the worst goaltending in the league. So, right. And how many um, goals does Nestrasil have now? Nine, sorry? Ten. How many goals does Nestrasil have now? Around? Over 10, I believe. Yeah. Um, he had he's nine been last second season. line for a while. Yeah. Um, Yarn Crocs playing first line now in, <laughs> in, uh, in Nashville. That's what uh, Topher was saying. Um, they've got, they, I mean, they, they've given away a lot of their margin for error as far as their uh, uh, farm system is concerned. The, uh, the top the top scorers in Grand Rapids are mostly all um, career minor leaguers now, guys, guys who won't play in the NHL, basically, and uh, Anthony Mantha. And he's not a center, so uh, they're, they're very, uh, they're, they're kind of in trouble. And if they were to give up more for a guy like Hartnell, it's probably not going to be effective much past this year and next, um, if at all. Um, I mean, I think that would really put them in a big bind going into 2018-2019 time frame. And do you really want to sacrifice that kind of thing, um, especially with what you've already given up, uh, considering you know, um, you're probably not going to win the Cup anyway uh, without more moves than just getting, a, like just getting one forward. You know, they, they need a couple defensemen. Right now their number one pair is Quincy and DeKaiser, which um, is really not something you're going to win a cup with. Yeah, they need a blockbuster trade, and it's just not out there. I don't think those blockbuster deals are even – they're very few and far between the deadline. Mainly these deals are acquiring UFAs for prospects or second-round picks. They're not going to be able to go out and trade for number one or new number two defenseman right now, which is what they need. It, 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 to me, if anything – I know this is going to be sacrilegious to a lot of Red Wing fans, but I'd be selling some of these parts. I would trade Darren Helm for whatever draft pick you could get right now. Uh, Because he's an unrestricted free agent. I I don't think they can afford him. I I really don't want him back for any contract that Ken Holland sees fit to give him. I think they're working on a lifetime deal. Yeah, really, with a no-trade clause. (laughs) But I mean, I would I would trade Helm. I would I would, and and I was for trading Philpola a few years back, getting a first round pick for him, calling up Tatar at the time, who was lighting up Grand Rapids, and and letting him play a top six forward line. And and you know, it just they're caught in this position where every single year we're stuck at this point where the deadline is coming, they're in the playoffs or right on the cusp, and. It's really probably the worst thing for the franchise going forward, because Holland sees this. He knows he's got an edict from above that they got to make the playoffs. They're so obsessed with it, and you just you just wonder. I will will Timo Pulkinen be on this team when we do this show next Tuesday? I'm not hundred percent sure. Oh, I don't really want to think about that. I think aside from, aside from Larkin, he's the one guy. Um, under 25 that they probably wouldn't want to lose. He's, he's got the elite skill. He's got that shot. And it hasn't really been um, kind of showcased in the NHL yet because they don't have anyone to feed him the puck. He hasn't played with a center. Well, you're telling really me Luke Lendenny tonight centering, uh, centering Pulkin is not going to get the job done? I'm sure Columbus uh, is really scared of that line right <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really optimistic about that. And that, it's, it's a shame because he lit up the AHL um, he does have an elite shot. He's 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 just he's a guy that can score at the NHL level with the right you know with the right teammates with the right line mates. I'm sorry. Um, and to give him up because they don't think he's producing as well. Uh, I, if they trade him away, he's going to end up producing somewhere else. 
And I mean, I'm talking like 25, 30 goals is what I really think his ceiling is, at least, uh, just because there's not a lot of guys who can fire the puck like that, especially if you, if you put them on the power play. And I mean, those guys are not easy to come by. And goal scoring is probably the rarest commodity commodity in the NHL. And the guy that can put the puck in the net, uh, that's just not. No, I mean, and, not one to get him And, and this is if this was the Blackhawks. I I'm, I'm guessing they would trade Nyquist or Tatar, uh, maybe mm-hmm. package them somehow, get a defenseman. And put Pulkin in that slot where you've lost either one of those two players, and you're and you're not probably going to lose much. If anything, you Pulkin might even gain something. I mean, you might even gain something. So it just makes no. It just there's just no rhyme or reason to anything that Ken Holland has done. And as Topher Ryan, who's another DSR contributor, who's you know couldn't be on the show tonight, but he did send a bunch of information that we kind of want to talk about. The other the other thing to talk about Ken Holland is. He's really screwed up the entire market. The, the whole entire trade deadline has really been botched by Holland, where he's completely driven up player values. The, these these UFAs, these 35, 36-year-old centers, which maybe seven or eight years ago would get you a second-round pick or third-round pick. Now, because of what Holland's done in the past for Leguan and Cole, he's completely driven up the, the the price. Yeah, I think that started with the Quincy trade in 2012 when they, they gave up a first uh, to Tampa Bay to get him from the Avalanche because the Avalanche wouldn't do that deal directly. Um, and I mean, I mean they, yeah, the think time, about that for a second. They gave up a first round pick for Kyle Quincy, for the guy who Ky- they had let walk a few years earlier. To, so they could keep, I think, a 46 year old Chelios, right? Right. I think that was yes. the decision. They, they, I mean, they, they, right there, that, that's such malpractice that you gave up a first-round pick for a guy you let walk two years earlier. Well, I think it's a loyalty touchdown a little bit earlier. You know? Yeah, but yeah, I guess it would loyalty to a guy you'd already gotten rid of, though. That's that's loyalty, and I mean, that's Ken Holland loyalty on like a, on an absolute level that I, I don't think we had seen. There's some other names out there. I, I'm wondering. I mean, this is not what they need, uh, but. Talking about bringing guys back into the fold, Yuri Hoodler's out there. Oh gosh! I mean, well, they already have Yurko, they have, yeah. uh, they I, have Yurko, Nyquist, and um, Tatar. Like it's all the same guy. I, I know, I know. Guy. But we're talking about Ken Holland, and uh, it would not surprise me if they added him. He's I, UFA too, right? Yeah, he's yeah, he's a UFA also. So what's that? Manta in a first round pick? <laughs> yeah, Manta. Nah, I say Manta in a second for 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 Hoodler. But I mean, this is this. These are the kind of discussions that we're having because of the past, and well, it's not really that outrageous. I mean, we're joking, but it's it's not that outrageous because they've made such horrible deals. Is anyone on this, either Brian or you? I mean, does anyone doubt that they're going to make a trade? I I I would be shocked because, like I said, Chris Illich is not going to tolerate them missing the playoffs, and he's made that clear in 2014. When he was very upset with some of the things that Ken Holland had done, and, and I think there's pressure on on Holland to keep that streak going, and that's that's a scary proposition going into the next few days. The real shame of it for me is that um, they had been really fortunate with their drafts the last four or five years, which isn't always the case. I mean, they drafted pretty poorly between 20, 20, 2005 and two thousand ten, you know, for the most part. So these things kind of come and go. I mean, it's a lot of luck. But the last five years, they drafted really well. 
And so that gives you the ability to kind of turn your team over without taking a big hit on the ice, kind of like the Blackhawks did this past offseason. And they really weren't able to capitalize off of it because they get too loyal to, like what you're saying, too loyal, and the inability to kind of sell an asset high. So if you look at what Toronto's done the last few weeks, you know, they wanted to trade uh, Phaneuf because his contract is awful. Um, he's a guy who's almost untradeable. You know, you thought Toronto would have to eat a bunch of money. Well, they played him with their best defenseman all year, and they played him second-line minutes, so he looks really good. And now they get Ottawa to take him without even taking any money. Same thing they did with Polak and um, uh, Spalink the other day. They've been playing those guys sheltered minutes, um, kind of propping them up, and then they got a good return for those guys. And had Detroit taken that look maybe a year or two ago with, uh, for example, Abdicator and Helm, you know, going into the deadline this year, um, theoretically, you could be trading Helm and Applicator with their backfields already on the roster and getting second-round picks for both those guys or getting two seconds and two-thirds or something like that. And now you're replenishing the roster without taking a big hit because they drafted so well. Um, you know, and I just that's, to me, the biggest shame of it is that they've missed on all these opportunities. And that doesn't even start with the defensemen. They've had so many opportunities to acquire defensemen the last few years. You know, elite defensemen that hit the market like uh, – Cody Hamilton available in this offseason, and he went for very little uh, at, at the uh, at the draft and already before the draft. And the Leafs were Leafs didn't move on that, and now you see them playing. You know, like I said, Quincy and DeKaiser is their first pair, and they've passed on those kind of opportunities repeatedly. Bowmeister a, a couple years ago. Bowmeister a couple years ago they passed on too. Yeah, Bowmeister. Um, there was a couple other ones too. I just I can't remember off the top of my head and. You know, that's how you rebuild your defense as the team's getting older. And, you, you know, you, they would have traded Erickson theoretically or something like that. Now, I've never even re-signed Quincy. They have a bunch of defensemen in the uh, in the minors that had really good pedigree um, in their amateur careers. You know, um, Jensen was the uh, WCHA Player of the Year, first-team All-American the same year uh, that the Kaiser was second-team All-American. He, he scored twice the rate that the Kaiser did in college. He's never gotten a look. Stroll was OHL Defenseman of the Year. He was uh, his last-year juniors. Uh, Willette was QMJHL Defenseman of the Year. I mean, if you look at the past recipients of those types of awards, they're good NHLers, and we don't even know if these guys are any good. And Jensen's already 25. He's the same age right. as the Kaiser. I mean, you have no idea. That's the stuff so, that scares me. A guy like Jensen, they'll give him away for, like, a hand use or something like yeah. that. and. Well, we will we will all right. we will all sit by uh, tsn.ca for the next six days with our fingers crossed that Ken Holland does nothing. Th- thanks, Anthony, for joining us. Uh, maybe we'll uh, touch base in the next week or so after the deadline and see what what transpires. We will be back. Thanks, thanks, thanks a lot, so Anthony. much for having me on. Uh, uh, I will uh, get a better microphone so Spirit doesn't hate me. I got. I got to thank Spy for the tickets tonight for the Red Wings. Oh yeah, so yeah. Bcav. Bcav's so. going to see his uh, best friend. Yeah, Jack Johnson, Plakes, and Spiros. Very uh, nice game. Nice move by yeah, Justin to yeah. do that. He's uh, he's uh, going to see a Michael Moore movie tonight instead. Well, he's also in East Lansing. So. Oh, well, yeah. Well, it takes him about five minutes to drive back here. The guy drives 140 <laughs> miles per hour while texting. So yeah. I, I wouldn't have taken him long to get back. And That's then, true. And then gone. I, I've seen him do crazier things. All right, we will be back with um, Mahir Bahatnagar. We are going to talk a few minutes before we wrap up discussing the DSRs. Worst Detroit sports media personality tournament of 64. We are down to the shitty 16, and we will get into those matchups in a little bit of depth, discuss what we think is going to happen. Mihir Bahadnagar, he's also known as Melrose Jerry Green on the DSR, coming up after the break. 
This is a previously recorded episode. Back on the DetroitSportsRag.com podcast, episode 19, February 23rd, 2016. I'm absolutely getting trashed all over the internets for Anthony Ciotti's connection. I apologize if you are having a hard time hearing our second guest, Jessica. I, mean, I heard it fine. I, I could hear him fine. I don't. I don't know what was. I don't going know on. why you guys are complaining so much. It's <laughs> being mean, and I, I'm getting bombed by saying I can't believe you didn't bail on this. Like I wasn't reading. I'm trying to interview him. And yeah, I can handle. understand him. I, I don't. I don't know, but it's been kind of a weird day. Weird day, anyway. <laughs> I'm not going to go into it, but one day I, I might discuss. The the depths I do I go in to you know to entertain you people. Well, now I'm curious. Yeah, well, one day I'll, I might talk about it. Not today. Okay. On the line is Mahir Bahatnagar. Uh, you might know him online as Melrose Jerry Green. He is a Twitter saboteur of the first order. U of M student. How you doing, Mahir? What's up, Moss? Oh. Well, I hope everyone. I hope I hope they don't bomb you too. Here, I, you sound good to me, but that doesn't really mean anything, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to uh, Anthony's inter- interview in the car, and it was before he changed his headset. It was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. How so how, how hope, bad was it after he changed it? It was. I was pretty clear after he changed it. Um, it sounded like he was mumbling with his first headset. I could I could barely understand it, um, but after he changed, it was really clear and it's good quality. Before we get into a breakdown of the uh, tournament, we are now down to 16 from our original 64 worst media tournament personality that we do every year. Uh, I want to talk to you about your shenanigans from last week, where, as I stated earlier, you were a U of M student, and your friend and mine. Fox 2, 105.1's Ryan Armani was giving a career day speech. Uh, <laughs> I, that's, I, don't, I don't think it was meant to be a career day speech, but it's kind of what it turned out to be in an econ class that, you know, I don't think you're in that class. I think you've already taken it. But mm-hmm. you decided to go see what Ryan Armani had to say about economics. We didn't know this, I don't think, until last week, but I guess he graduated for U, from U of M with an economics degree. And his yes. professor uh, mistakenly decided to bring him back to talk to the <laughs> students, which you periscoped in its entirety. Uh, you want you want to give us a little bit of a breakdown of what occurred there? Yeah, that was it was surreal watching that in person. Um, so the class is basically uh, it's a lecture series. It's a one credit course. So uh, every Friday from one to two thirty, they'll bring in an alum of the econ program here at Michigan. Oh, that's the whole and, class? Uh, that's the whole class? Those speeches? Yeah, the class The class is basically just listening to these guys speak for an hour and a half every Friday. And at the end of the, after the end, at the end of the semester, um, you have to write a paper just basically summarizing what you learned and what you liked about the class. It's really easy. It's just one credit. Um, so I took that my freshman year. I'm currently a junior now. Um, and usually with these lectures, they'll ask a bunch of executives from high-level companies like Microsoft, Goldman Sachs, you know, these typical huge companies where Michigan alums go to. And uh, Ryan Armani was the first 
person I've heard speaking that was not in this distinguished category. <laughs> um, and I got an email last week from the econ department. It's like, oh, come watch this person speak in this class. And of course, given my history with Ryan, decided to go watch him speak. And, and he was a little rattled anyway. He was a little r- rattled, I think, before uh, he 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 had mentioned he was real nervous about doing it. He's not really good at at public speaking. And then, mm-hmm. of course, he gets up there and he looks and he sees that uh, someone from the DSR is in attendance. And <laughs> not only that, you, even though I against my protestations, you decided to print out an article where I bombed Ermani and then dispersed it among the class. That is correct, sir. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you you really made him feel right at home from from the get go. As a matter of fact, someone tweeted me today that those articles that you left in that hall are still there. Someone took a picture of them and, and, tw- <laughs> and tweeted it to me today. I think it was the same guy who uh, sent the picture of Spiro doing the uh, the underhand motion at U of M MSU game. I think it was the same dude. But uh, yeah, so those those articles are still in that uh, classroom. <laughs> I think the highlight, the, the couple highlights for me of that that career day speech were one, he started it off with playing I don't know about five minutes of audio from his show the day before with Rico Beard, where they yep. discussed him going to give this speech. So like mm-hmm. five minutes right off the bat was just like an idiotic discussion between him and Beard on one hundred five one that nobody was listening to, and. Then he gives the speech, which was basically all it was, was a discussion about how he became a personality at Fox 2, which had nothing to do with economics whatsoever. And then he wrapped it up after about what? How many minutes was it? Like, Yeah, his speech started around 1.15, and I believe he was finished at 1.45, and that was – the first time I'd ever seen a speaker go that go in that much time. Um, usually they take up at least an hour speaking and then about like 10 minutes or so for questions. So you're, you don't necessarily use up all 80 minutes. Um, the class starts at 110 uh, according to Michigan time, but he was, it just seems like he was so unprepared. Like you can't go just 30 minutes in that class. Everyone was out by two o'clock. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they, it was good for them. They got a quick start on their weekend. So the the, the other thing that I thought was kind of funny was that um, when they when he turned it over to questions, yeah, what, a preacher was <laughs> in the hall and he asked some yeah. n- nonsensical question, and then you, I think you asked two questions. One, yeah. one was kind of like just a joke about his like gambling history, which you asked about daily fantasy sports, just kind of like give him a dig about gambling. And then you asked him yeah. about Drew Sharp. And at that point, I think the professor was like sitting like right in front of you. Yeah. The, uh, the professor was sitting right in front of me the entire lecture. Um, I don't know if that was by coincidence or not. I don't think um, so. I mean, I wasn't sitting necessarily right in the front. I mean, I was sitting to the side and probably towards the middle. So I have a feeling that he, he put her there and, as soon as I asked that question, she turns around. She's like, "We're not discussing that," and just in a very stern voice. Well, and I think he's like, "I." I think they were on pardon? to you because you you had mentioned to me when you put those articles down on the table that the Fox mm-hmm. Two cameraman who was 
recording it, turned him over, and his wife yeah. was his wife was also there. So I think they kind of like. I think she knew who you were. I think they pointed pointed you out, and mm-hmm. I think that's why she was sitting there. Because she like the minute you asked that question about Drew Sharp, mm-hmm. she jumped right on top of it. Like, how would she even know like what the hell that question even really meant? I don't doubt she knows who Drew Sharp is or any. It was just it was just too soon. And the fact that she was sitting right there, I didn't even put that all that together. But I think that I think that's why she was sitting there, babysitting yeah, you. That had to be the case. And then the other thing that was uh, funny about the, the whole event was after it was over, <laughs> Ryan came up to you <laughs> and, and like yeah. shook your hand and like you know said, "Hey, how you doing? You know, how did it go?" And then what was your response when Ryan t- asked you how it went? Yeah, I, I didn't want to, like, hurt his feelings in person necessarily. Um, so he goes up to me, he asks, how'd I do? And then I just kept silent. And he's like, was it shitty? And then I hesitantly said yes. <laughs> and <laughs> said, yeah, people are watching on Periscope. And I think oh, there's God. over 500 viewers. And, yeah, everyone was just bombing him. And he's like, oh, that's okay. And then he said his wife was there. So, I mean, after he told me that, I wasn't going to say anything further. But, uh... <laughs> The funniest was, was thing was, the be- here's the best part of the whole entire situation. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Detroit Sports 105.1 wanted to make a big announcement about their lineup change. Mm-hmm. And so they, 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 they were going to periscope it. And this was to announce that Ryan and Rico were moving to mid-morning and that the, after, excuse me, the morning show was going to be Belizean, Mazaway, and uh, Mark Fellhauer. And mm-hmm. so to make that announcement, they go on Periscope and say, we've got a major announcement to make. And that viewing of live viewers got like 350 people watching. <laughs> you, you, Mihir Bahatnagar, a student at U of M, Periscoped him giving a career day speech and got over 500 <laughs> Yeah. People watching live, like you had, a, you had 150 more people than them making an announcement about their lineup change. If that doesn't show how poorly listened to that station is, I, I don't know what 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 will. Yeah, I mean, this it was just a train wreck from the beginning. Oh, how about how about the fact that the guy swore during his speech more than yeah, more than an Alberto Burneco uh, Deadspin article. Yeah, I mean, I had never um, in my history attending that class. How many of the how, how many how many of those have you been to approximately? Uh, my freshman year, there were about twelve. Okay. Um, and then last year, I just went because they had some guy from Goldman Sachs. I just wanted to hear him talk. Um, so I would say I think like twelve, thirteen. Um, I've been and never heard a guest speaker that unprofessional. The guy was just dropping f bombs and shits everywhere. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I, he, you could really tell he was trying to connect with the younger uh, demographic. So he thought, like his frat boy humor, and you know, just swearing and talking about his boozing and all this other uh, nonsense that he did. But he doesn't realize you're talking to a, a class of intellectuals. They want to learn how they can apply their economic degree um, in the future, and he just had no idea what he was doing. Just. No, it basically it's tur- just an embarrassment. <laughs> it basically turned out that the reason he claims that he got hired at Fox Two was because 
someone hiring saw that that he had an economics degree at U of M, uh, which is probably mm-hmm. bullshit. I'm guessing it was because he was willing to take a cheaper, you know, l- l- least amount of money to do that job because he was absolutely begging for it. I, I think that was mm-hmm. the lesson that we learned in that speech. Anyway, so that was uh, pretty good. I- I'm going to link those you you've got the uh youtube clips up i think i'll post those on the website yeah. if anybody wants to watch that uh, absolute abomination of a career day speech it was <laughs> I, I haven't seen yeah, I, think, I, haven't, I haven't seen anything that bad since uh jerry seinfeld had to give a career day speech at that an, an episode <laughs> of seinfeld so let's go uh, that was a good segue to the uh worst tournament bracket where we can talk about tom masaway oh a seinfeld reset yeah so we're down to the to the uh, shitty sixteen. Uh, starting mm-hmm. tomorrow, we will get down to the excrement eight, and let's just go over some of these matchups real quick. Uh, in the uh, we're in the Danziger region, we're going to have Chris McCoskey and Tom Mazaway fighting it out in a absolute epic battle. The winner would would uh, get Rod Allen or Anthony Fennick. In the uh, Jason Dixon region, Drew Sharp is going up against fanboy Greg Krupa. Winner of that matchup goes against the uh, Matt Derry, Mitch Album, a sexual assault victim, blame game. That, that That's just too perfect. The fact that Derry and Album are facing off, uh, the, the winner really should uh, probably... Make a donation to the National Organization for Women there. In the other region, Gene Myers, Lynn Henning against Rob Parker, who we're going to get to in a second because there was a big discussion about that. This actually, this whole region is completely under siege from our uh, our, our readership. Uh, the winner of Henning Parker goes up against Couch and Anderson. And then in the uh, final bracket, EJ Mitchell region, Terry Foster against Pat Caputo and Mark Fellhar against. Owen St. James. Now, the first thing I want to talk about with you is this controversy over Rob Parker beating Armani. There's people up in arms. Parker was a 12 seed going into this tournament. He almost didn't get in. He was one of the final four entries that was voted on our Facebook page because of his absolute irrelevance in the market. Uh, but you know what? I It does not surprise me that one of these years that Rob Parker did, you know, made a run. This is not a shock. And he is the first 12 seed ever to get to the shitty 16. Uh, usually it's a pretty chalky tournament. The highest seed ever to get this far before that was uh, last year, Mark Fellhauer, who's in it again, the shitty 16. He was a 10 seed last year. But what's your thoughts on you know Parker defeating Ermani? Uh, I think it's an absolute travesty that Rob Parker defeated Ryan Ermani. Uh, here we have Parker, who, what, does he appear once a week on or this past year he appeared once a week on sports final edition on local four, I believe. And that was yeah. his involvement in this market. And whereas we have Ryan Armani, uh, Monday through Friday, four hours a day on one Oh five one. And then he's also one of box two's, um, many sports reporters. So this guy clearly got a big presence on the market. And then I think they're about equally bad in terms of their takes, uh, give or take. But you just got to look at the relevance in the market, and Parker has absolutely none of that. Um, I think a lot of the voters factored in Parker's past transgressions, which is not what you're supposed to do when uh, looking at the calendar year. Um, 
Well, the fact I think the fact that he tried to run me over in his Jeep Cherokee probably had something (laughs) to do with it. I I have a feeling that might have tipped the scales just a tad. Yeah, I I was just about to get to that. I mean, I saw it with my own eyes. We asked him a few questions in the parking lot of 24 seconds, and he just hit the accelerator and just almost ran you over. It's pretty funny at the time, but same time, (laughs) I think that's that's that uh, weighed a lot in the voters' minds. Yeah, that's that's the thing about the DetroitSportsRag.com. We're here complaining that Rob Parker advanced, and we're mad about it. And this is a gentleman who, you know, by all rights, <laughs> tried to kill me earlier this year or last year. So that, that's that's how deep this tournament is every year. Uh, the other controversy, semi-controversy, was also out of that bracket. Uh, you had Graham Couch, who, uh, you know, I, you almost have to think Graham Couch is – on a mission to win this thing. I, I don't know oh, how else sure. you can explain because since this tournament has started, maybe you can go into, you can delve into some of his behavior on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, just this past Sunday, uh, he left Maryland, a consensus top what, 15, 20 team in the country. Uh, he left them off his AP ballot. And then he goes into this long ramble about how, uh, they're not playing well right now, but given they're, I think they're tied for second in the Big Ten Conference right now. Yeah. Easily one of the best teams in the country. And then Scott Van Pelt from ESPN goes on and just bombs Couch for his reasoning behind this. And I've noticed a trend uh, of the last few months. Every time some major program loses one game, so uh, the examples I've got, I've presented are Duke, Iowa, uh, North Carolina, and Maryland. So immediately bury the team and say, oh, they're not going to win anything in March or they're, uh, they're too soft. And then the thing is, MSU, the team he covers on a regular basis, they suffered a three-game losing streak earlier in January. Um, and they were with – they had Denzel Valentine with them, but you heard absolutely nothing from Couch then. Uh, he still had them in the top 15 after they lost to an unranked. Nebraska team at home, so you can just tell like he's the biggest homer around. Yeah. That wasn't even and just to, that wasn't even his biggest college basketball or his worst college basketball take since the tournament started. He also claimed on Twitter that he could he would do a better job coaching a college basketball team along with ten Michigan prep coaches than Roy Williams. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just it's just ridiculous, man a huge homer and he's just spouting off hot take after hot take without any real uh, substance to it. And then just today he defended that writer from, uh, I believe it was SB nation who published that, that rape uh, article or about that cop who raped a bunch of African-American women. Yeah. Um, The guy, he he just called him like a good guy. Yeah. He's a good guy. You know, I know he's a stand up guy. The guy wrote an article basically minimizing the fact that, this cop who used to play football at Eastern Michigan was a serial rapist. I think, I don't know how many times he mentioned in the article that these women uh, had, you know, pasts that weren't great. And it, it almost the way, the way you almost, you read it, which SB nation pulled down hours after it was posted and Deadspin and other websites just completely bombed it. But you mm-hmm. made it sound like, uh, well, these women, maybe not could not be trusted because of their past when in fact 
the reason he was raping them was because he he figured nobody would believe them. That's why he was picking them. And that's why the article got pulled down, I think. I mean, I don't know if you ever read the cash yeah. aid version of it, but it was really horrible and he never really got any um he never really got any of the victims or their families take about what occurred. It was just a horrible 12,000-word abortion of an article. And and Couch wasn't the only one who stood up for this guy. Dave Burkett actually retweeted the article and said it was a good read and you should read this and promoted it. Like he, Dave Burkett actually promoted an article by this guy. I think, what's his name, Jeff Arnold? Um, yeah. He promoted this article on Twitter and then within an hour or so, SB Nation had to write an apology for posting it in the first place. That's how bad Dave Burkett uh, has become. And even then, he, he didn't advance to the shitty 16. He got knocked out by Rod Allen in a, in a, uh, in a uh, vote that I really didn't agree with, but you know it is what it is. <laughs> so these matchups, let's run down real quick what you think is going to happen. mccoskey Mazaway. I think Mazaway is going to probably win this. Yeah, I think I think Mazway's gonna win as well. Um, just between his awful takes on the Tigers and Lions, you know, saying that the Lions should hire Sheldon White as their permanent GM, <laughs> uh, saying the Tigers should buy at the deadline. Uh, just just an idiot. Just has no knowledge about anything that's not related to Seinfeld. And uh, he's had a larger stage. Um, he's basically a co-host now with Belizean and Bellhauer. Uh, the only thing I can think about Mikoski was that he wrote that Austin's article uh, when he was re-signed for next year. Um, other than that, I didn't really think much of Officer Barbrady's year. Right. Um, so I do believe Masway will advance there, and he probably should. Uh, Rod Allen against Fennec, obviously Fennec. We don't have to discuss that one much. Fennec's going to probably take 80% or more of the vote. Uh, Drew Sharp Krupa, I think the Cinderella fanboy story is going to end. Sharp has been absolutely trashing the competition, and rightfully so. Prohibitive favorite, I'm sure you, you agree he's going to advance there. Oh, yeah, definitely. The, and then, the, like I said, the sexual assault battle royal, Derry versus Album. I, I, I think Derry is making a run this year. I, I think he's going to eventually lose to his broadcast partner. But I, I'd have to say I'd say 75% Derry on that one. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. I mean, Derry, besides the sexual assault uh, comments that he made last week, uh, he stole Spiro's story about Brad Osmus uh, getting fired after the year. Right. He also created these cheesy hashtags for the Lions draft to try and garner attention. And then he also took countless pictures with uh, female guests on the show. Um, and he just has a bigger oh, yeah, stage than album at that this guy. point. Yeah, yeah, Jessica's already she just threw up in the garbage can. Uh, <laughs> oh, Henning, Henning against Parker. Oh, man. Parker's been doing very well, but I, I, I think Henning will advance. Uh, Henning's definitely uh, the rightful winner here. I would be surprised if he doesn't get more than, or if he doesn't get less than 75%. Graham Couch uh, against Anderson, a, mo- a, a game that we've had to switch venues. Uh, this vote will only be on Facebook because uh, M. Go Bryan, another contestant in this, uh, you know, this bracket, keeps retweeting it out, and his, his people vote for Couch like lap dogs. So I think if we want a fair assessment of this matchup. I think we're just gonna have to do it on the Facebook page. Yeah. I mean, Couch is doing his best to uh, 
upset well, Anderson. Yeah, uh, between Couch and, and, and Brian Cook, I, he's got a shot against Anderson, really. But yeah, we'll but, see what uh, happens. I think when you just look at the whole body of work, uh, a lot of Couch's transgressions have taken place after the tournament started. And uh, Anderson's, Anderson's just awful. Um, the defending Anderson's champion. rightful winner here. Right. And then the last uh, two matchups, Foster against Caputo. Wow, that's a battle, which two guys who just always, <laughs> every year, do very well in this tournament. Um, I, I, I got to go with Foster there, I'm thinking. And then the last one, Fellhauer, Helene St. James. Helene St. James, the first solo entrance entrant female to ever get in the, sh- in the shitty 16. She'd be the first per- uh, woman ever to get in the excrement The only other woman who got in the shitty 16 was Sarah Foraker, but she did that partner with Bill McAllister. So Helene St. James is breaking uh, glass ceilings all over the place in this tournament here. Yeah, I agree, and rightfully so. Uh, she's had a horrible year just refusing to ans- uh, ask tough questions to Red Wings management, um, just phrasing every question to talk about, which is uh, one thing you're not supposed to do as a journalist. And she... She needs to represent the awful uh, Red Wings beat writers. Yeah, so I agree. I, I, I'm I believe she I'm should hoping, advance. I'm hoping she becomes the first female to ever get into the fucked up four. That's that's what I'll be voting for. Yeah, All right, she'll Mahir. have a tough matchup with Foster. But, yeah, I know. Uh, Foster will probably win that. He will, but um, maybe a little Foster fatigue. I mean, the guy's every year he makes a deep run. So maybe we'll maybe 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 we can get the women to, out to vote for. <laughs> Maybe maybe Jessica can get some women out there to vote for Helene St. James for, for equality <laughs> reasons. Maybe. You'll yeah. have to send me some dirt on her, and I'll send it around. I really don't have any dirt on her. She's, that she's, she's that just, doesn't help. She's just bad at her job. <laughs> she's not one of the few. Uh, she's one of the few who doesn't really have any uh, skeletons in her closet that we know. She just just, just a lot of scarves. just generally sucks. Yeah, just a lot of scarves. All right, well, that'll wrap it up. We will have the voting. Uh, we'll get down to the excrement tomorrow. I want to thank Ryan Schuling. Anthony Ciotti, uh, Melrose Jerry Green. Thanks, Jessica. Uh, hopefully no, next week. Spiro will be back, and I won't have a migraine headache while doing this program, among other uh, issues that we're, we're having. a little bit. Yeah, really. All right, thanks for joining us, and we will see you next Tuesday. And uh, don't forget to vote tomorrow in the caucuses. This is a previously recorded episode.